Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. I'm very excited. Tonight, we're going to talk about an incredibly important topic, and that's renunciation, renouncing the world, so to speak. It's uh, a narrative that you find in almost every spiritual philosophy all around the world, a spiritual tradition, um, whether it be Christianity, Islam, all the sects of Hinduism, almost all of them seem to emphasize renunciation. That is a turning away from the world a rejecting almost of worldliness in favor of, in some cases, a transcendentalist spiritualism or uh, some more pure version of life than what is normally found fraternizing with the masses. There's that narrative. And so it needs to be addressed. And so what I want to do today is explain renunciation on three levels. You know, I'll tell you what it is. Um, what it's for, and finally, how to do it. You know, so the goal of today is to kind of repackage renunciation for you so that it is no longer seen as an external thing that you do, but is instead a radical internal move that happens in your relationship to things. It's not a change in the things or the activities. It's a change in the why and how behind those things and activities. So ultimately, my thesis today will be, we all ought to renounce the world. In fact, if we don't, it will be a serious impediment to our spirituality. So I hope to encourage you all and make renunciance of you all today, (laughs) but hopefully with a new idea as to what that means or what that looks like. So let's do that. Um, Before we go any further though, uh, two disclaimers. One, you might hear some club music in the background. I apologize for that. My roommate has something going, knocked a little bit, but hey, you know, if you can't teach yoga philosophy in a club, you can't teach it anywhere. So we'll just accept the isness of that. Just want you to know if you hear it, that's what's happening. It's not in your head. It's not a remnant worldliness that's lingering in the back of your mind. Don't worry. That's actually happening. (laughs) Um, Second thing to point out is, as always, the philosophy that we're going to be talking about today is only of use to you insofar as it can be put into practice, insofar as it can be applied to your daily life now. So it's got to have some utility to you. And so that being said, uh, don't be afraid to unmute and stop me at any time during this presentation to debate anything you might have heard. Remember, it's only true if it's true for you. And Indian philosophy um, cherishes and welcomes all levels of debate. So that, always remember, is your right. And this is more a discussion than it is a lecture. Okay, so let's start with this renunciation business. What is it that we need to renounce? What is there to renounce? So we'll start with the definition of worldliness. And this is a definition that is true for almost all the spiritual traditions that we will be talking about today. So you hear it a bit in Christianity, 
when um, there's that narrative, foolishness with God is wisdom to the world and wisdom with God is foolishness to the world. So already you see there's a dichotomy. You know, what, what is true in one sense is untrue in another. What is worthwhile and virtuous in one sense is not so in the other. So that's an interesting um, duality there. And you see it a lot in Christianity. And the languaging you get in Christianity is the kingdom of heaven versus the world, literally, or Babylon. So you get that a lot too. And particularly in the Rastafari or more mystic Spain of Christianity, you hear this kind of uh, rejection of the world, Babylon. Welcome, Justin. Good to see you. And welcome, Corey. Welcome. Okay. So, I'm just going to hit that. Yes. Okay. Welcome. So, um, in Christianity, you already see that duality between the kingdom of heaven and the world. That duality, I'll argue, has its roots in Zoroastrianism. So, around 1700 BCE, you have the powerful prophet Zoroaster who emerges in Persia. And Zoroaster's conception of the universe is that there are two opposing forces that are constantly in a tug of war with one another. You know, the story goes, at the beginning of time, there are two actors or principles. One is Ahura Mazda, the Lord of wisdom and goodness. The other is Aingra Manyu or Ahriman, the dragon or the Lord of evil. So the story goes in the beginning of time, before time, actually, uh, Ahura Mazda faces off Aingaramanyu. They both start to size each other up and they're like, you know, toddlers in the playground. They're trying to figure out who the other one is. Immediately, they realize they are polar opposites. And Ahura Mazda tries to make peace with Aingaramanyu first. He says, hey, brother, let's be friends. Let's find a way to collaborate, you know, synergy. Real team player, Angramanyu or Ahriman, sees this as weakness and attacks Ahura Mazda. And this starts the whole war where Ahura Mazda sends Angramanyu down into the pit, locks him away in the chasm, and he eventually breaks loose. And now the world was created as a kind of battleground for these two forces. So you can see this world as uh, the table upon which the elbows of these two giants are on and they're arm wrestling. You know, so that's the conception you get in Zoroastrianism. And you get it again, as I mentioned before, in Platonism, where Plato proposes the ideal world of forms and this kind of degenerate world of illusion. So this world is a shadow world. All that you see in this world is reflections in the pond, so to speak. Dancing shadows on the cave wall, to use Plato's proper allegory. Um, and so that is the kind of foundation for a lot of the dualistic philosophies that we find around the world. So you can see how it's only a short walk from Plato and Zoroastrianism um, to Babylon, the world versus the kingdom of heaven. You know. So in the platonic conception, you can kind of see this ideal world of form as being up there and this world as being kind of down here, degenerate. And that's why we get this idea of the head is more important than the lower part of the body. You know, this idea of a kind of directionality 
the surreal, I wouldn't say surreal, but transcendental spiritual world is up there. It's a sky world. And this earthbound world is the degenerate one. So there is a directionality. I want to acknowledge, though, that early Christian mysticism tries to do away with that directionality when Paul writes letters saying the kingdom of heaven is within. You know, so that's a move by the Christian mystics to say, stop looking up, start looking in. But it still preserves this duality. It says deep inside you, there is a place. It's called the kingdom of heaven. Apparently, what's wise with regards to the kingdom of heaven is foolish with regard to the world. So there's something kind of anti-social about the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's maybe even anti-Darwinian, as we might explore in a little bit. Um, but it definitely is diametrically opposed to the outside world, the marketplace, you know. And, you know, Paul, he was Roman. He was a Roman Jew writing in the marketplaces of Rome. And he was very critical about the marketplace, you know, the masses. So there you go. In Christianity, coming from Zoroastrianism and Platonism, you have this duality, the world and the spiritual life. So how does this manifest in the life of a Christian mystic? Well, let's take the, um, the archetypical Christian mystic, the Christ himself. You know, and Jesus Christ typically, archetypically, I should say, is a world renouncer. You know, someone once made a joke. It's funny that we celebrate Christmas um, because here we are um, celebrating the ultimate anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist Marxist figure with uh, exorbitant <laughs> participation in a consumerist world. This is very funny, very funny. But um, Jesus was known to value simplicity. You know, he looked at the temple and in the book of Mark, he said, not even one brick of this temple will be left standing when I'm through, something like that. He used to scoff at the opulence of the Jewish temples around him. He preferred to wear simple clothes. And he would often say things like, look at these flowers. You know, Jesus was like the first hippie, pointing out flowers, putting the flowers in his hair, probably. But he was all about, look at these flowers. Even King Solomon is not clad in raiment finer than this. So he's rejecting wealth and he's saying you can be a king if you sleep on the floor like me and truly he's called the king of israel you know and when he's crucified it's i-n-r-i inri you know here is the king of the uh, jesus of nazareth king of the jews um and so he's that idea idea of a king without a crown who sleeps on the floor who says wherever i lay my head that's my home so that ideal has been championed in Christianity and you see it with the Benedictine monks, the Franciscan monks. So if you study a great figure like St. Francis, that's a good case study. Because St. Francis is an aristocrat, you know, before he becomes St. Francis, he's a wealthy person. He is in the upper echelons of society. And one day he's in a carriage, so the story goes, and he sees a leper and the leper comes to try to touch him or something. And he shirks. He goes, Ugh, don't touch me, you leper. And he, in that moment, realizes the folly of his behavior, of his life, of his elitism. And so he stops the carriage or chariot or whatever, gets out and gives the leper a hug. And that was his spiritual awakening. That so broke his mind, so shattered his sense of self. It was like the Rumi poem, you know give up the drop, become the ocean. It was in that mo a moment that uh, St. Francis gave up the drop 
of his life and became the ocean of Christ consciousness. And what did he do after that? The story is. Oops, sorry. Didn't mean to jar you with that. Sorry, welcome, Sean. So the story is after Saint Francis had this awakening, the first thing he did was I think something like walk around naked in the marketplace or um, uh, bray like a donkey and walk on all fours. I'm definitely mixing up some of the stories because it's not just St. Francis. It's a certain flavor of Christian mysticism that today we call fools for Christ. So I'll just write that in the chat. Fools of Christ. Yeah, it's always the smallest moments that you don't think will mean anything that mean the most. Exactly. That was St. Francis's awakening. And so he's one of what we might call the fool for Christ uh, figure that emerges in this period. And so a fool for Christ is someone who deliberately, and, and it's often someone of uh, stature, some respectable aristocrat who awakens to the truth of their nature, which is beyond all the constructs of society. And so the first thing that they do is they go to the marketplace and they walk on all fours, bray like a donkey, whack them, themselves, and basically uh, follow Jesus when he says, deny thyself. It's an act of self-abnegation, an act of humiliation almost, to rid them of this idea that they are you know, better than anybody else. It's becoming lowly. And so Jesus says, sit in the lowliest place. Wherever you go, sit in the lowliest place. He likes to wash the feet of his disciples. All that kind of stuff is a narrative you get in Christian mysticism. So typically, if you are to be a monk, a Christian monk, like a Benedictine or a Franciscan or a Dominican monk, you do a few things. The first thing you do is you change your name. You are no longer um, Deshant Selvalingam. You are brother such and such. You know. Um, the second thing you do is you cut off all your hair. And the third thing that you do is you give up all your clothes, your land, your property, your titles. You wear a rough smock and you live in anonymity. And some of the greatest art in the world was made by anonymous monks. You know, um, Gre Gregor Mendel, the Elil DNA guy, he, he was a monk. And so you would spend your time practicing austerity and living apart from the world. The only interaction you would have in the with the world is maybe begging or maybe preaching or teaching the world to renounce the world. So that's the only time you'd be involved in the marketplace. Otherwise, you're in the monastery, sheltered from the harsh vibrations of the city, so to speak. Okay, so that's renunciation in Christianity. Give up Babylon. Give up the world. Mammon, they call it, yes? Greed or worldliness. Now let's look at Islam. Similarly, um, an Islamic mystic or a Sufi is often called a fakir. Fakir means a poor one. It's actually, uh, what is it? A, a play on a word. There's a word, it's called fakir. And a fakir or fakir is someone who is very versed in the Quran and Sharia law. So it's an Islamic scholar. A fakir means a poor person. So a fakir is a play on the word fakir because what it actually means to be a fakir is to renounce the world, you know, to give up shaitan or iblis and become simple and humble, much like the Christian mystics. So great Sufis like Bistami and uh, Hafez and Shams of Tabriz were known by their vagabond appeal. You know, they really had a kind of aesthetic going. It was punk rock way before that was a thing. 
It was truly crust punk or whatever you want to call it. But they like to live on the streets. They like to dress simply. Shams of Tabriz would typically shave his eyebrows and either have really long hair or no hair at all. They like to dress eccentrically. Sometimes they would wear bells on their ankles and dress up like clowns. They would tattoo their face, you know, and in Turkey around the 13th century, that was really kind of out there, you know. So they like to be out there. They like to live on the fringes of society, kind of scoffed at by the worldly people. So that's the fakir. Funnily, Lord of the Rings, as you know, was written by a Christian mystic, so J.R. Tolkien, very into Christianity and Christian mysticism. Um, and his character, Aragorn, you know, the king, the king without, yes, exactly, Roxanne, truly. So Aragorn, the king without a crown, you know, he is a great king from a long lost race of noble men. And uh, he wanders the wilderness in obscurity. That is his defining feature. And so the line in J.R. Token is not all who wander are lost and all, not all that glitters is gold. Something like that. So, oh, and even, you know, Frodo Bag. Oh, oh, whoops. Did I lose connection? I think I might have. Am I back? Am I laggy? Okay, yeah, because it just kind of died on me. Okay, so um, Aragorn, where was I? Frodo Baggins and Sam, right? In the, the first movie, Fellowship of the Ring, they're following Aragorn. And Sam goes, um, how do you know we can trust this scruffy vagabond guy? And Frodo says a beautiful line. Frodo says to Sam, I feel like the servant of the enemy would seem fairer, but feel fouler. Isn't that a beautiful inversion? The idea there is that Satan or Mammon or Iblis or the world is characterized by things that seem to be good on the surface, but in actuality aren't. The temptress, the mirage, the things that kind of uh, trick you. It's a trick. It's an illusion. In a moment, you'll see how Hinduism and Upanishadic literature use the same terms. So what is actually good then is the inverse. It's simple. It's rough it doesn't look desirable but it's great on the inside you know and there's a there's kind of a term for this outwardly sweet inwardly corrosive or outwardly corrosive inwardly sweet you know so it's a beautiful kind of inversion you see it in token you see it in islam you see it in christianity okay now let's walk into the garden of um Indian spiritual philosophy and you'll notice some similarities like the language that they use um, in the Upanishads to describe the world is Maya. It's not moralistic. It's, it's not, doesn't have that flavor of like the world is of the devil, you know, renounce the world. It's evil. It's not like that. It's more like the world that you think is there is not actually there. What you take to be solid matter is in fact empty space. What you take to be reality is in fact your own mental projections and superimpositions that look real to you, but actually bear very little to no semblance of reality. So that's kind of the language you get in the Upanishads. So the first thing that you are asked to do in the Upanishads is to renounce your identification with the world as real. That's the first kind of renunciation. It's to start to see the world as a dream, to start to see your reality as a figment of your own imagination, as a thought construct. 
And think about this. If you were firmly convinced that you were in a dream right now, would you really take your life that seriously? I mean, would you really start that charitable foundation? Would you really go to work tomorrow? Would you be that interested in maintaining your legacy and doing good works in building your business? Like all of those things only seem to matter insofar as you take this world to be tangibly real. You have to kind of consent to its reality in order to be kind of involved in it. The moment you wake up from its reality or the moment that you are thoroughly convinced the world is Maya or Mohini, illusion, it's like feeling like you are in a dream. And so really ponder that. If you were to wake up in tonight's dream and you knew with the core of your being that it was a dream, how would that change how you acted? You might be more interested in flying around than in building a business, than in establishing a life, you know. You might be a little more playful with it. I don't know. So in the Upanishadic times, around 3,800 BCE, there was an emphasis in seeing the world as an illusion and thereby refusing to participate in it. So renunciation was a matter of correcting an error, uh, fixing uh, a, a lens. And when you looked out at the world, you had to keep reaffirming this to yourself. Every time you felt lust, every time you felt greed, every every time you felt some kind of motivation to be involved in the world, to deal in the marketplace, you would catch yourself and go, ah, I'm hypnotized by this Maya. I am meandering around the waking dream. Exactly, Anisha. So why should we refuse to participate in something we came here to participate in? And so the non-dualist or the Upanishadic seer would tell you that, no, you didn't come here to participate in it at all, actually. You know, your, your participation is an error. It is a mistake. You participate um, and that is your failing because your participation brings you suffering. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about why um, you might want to renounce. That's section two of our talk. Like, why is participation a problem? Because the way you have phrased it, Anisha, is common to Kashmiri Shaivism. It's the idea that life is play. It's Shiva Lila. So it's a creative expression. And so this world is not illusion. It's art. Yes, it's fake. It's not real. But that doesn't mean we can't enjoy it, you know? Okay, good question, Corey. So morality is something we have to talk about today. So yeah, the Upanishadic seers don't have a kind of um, absolute morality because they don't see the world as real. So their morality was divided into two categories. It wasn't bad and good. It wasn't good and evil. It was instead ignorance and knowledge. (laughs) That was their morality. The only sin, and by the way, as we've mentioned before, the best translation for the word sin is... Um, the Greek word sin is uh, error or to miss the mark. So Upanishadic seers had that same kind of ideation. They, they were very careful to avoid moralizing Maya in the beginning, at least. You know, Historically, it later turns into a demonization and a rejection of the world in a moralistic flavor. But now at this stage, 3,800 BCE, thereabouts, it's not like that. It's more like a kind of 
philosophical understanding that what you see is not actually there. So you should stop being kicked around by it. Stop being pulled into it. Stop trying to build something because everything that you build is a castle in the air anyway. You know, so naturally, when you have this insight, the only thing you want to do is move away from what is not real and move towards what is real. And to the Upanishadic seers, what was real was Satchit Ananda, being consciousness bliss, which was their word for God or the monad or the one true thing that was inside all of us. So again, you get this kingdom of heaven is within us idea because the Upanishadic seers realized that through a very technical and precise procedure, namely meditation, a person could in the immediacy of their own awareness connect with what, which, what was real. So the Upanishadic seers were characterized by, you know, bearded fellows uh, at least this is their literary depiction, bearded fellows who hung out in the mountains by themselves. They were like supreme loners, super skinny, emaciated um, world renouncers. They were so involved and, and absorbed in the contemplation of the real that they were nowhere near a city. And if you wanted to learn these Upanishadic truths, you would have to go on a long hike through the Himalayas, uh, go, you know, like wandering the Himalayan mountain ranges until you found such a sage. And then he would Mr. Miyagi you for a couple of years to make sure that you were really legit and you actually wanted to uh, learn all this stuff. And after a couple of years of this, he would finally sit you down and teach you and you would have a guru to, to Shisha relationship. Now, that's kind of like the myth. The myth is that that's what an Upanishadic seer was. But in actuality, a lot of them were actually householders. You know, the great sages like Vyasa, Vasishta, a lot of them had wives and children. A lot of them were householders, not world renunciants. You know, isn't that interesting? Um, so now I want to introduce to you two phrases. And they are important phrases. One of them is sanyasin. A sanyasin is a world renouncer, someone who has seen through the illusion of Maya enough to disengage with it, to move away from it, and live in either a monastic setting with other sanyasins or live alone in the forests or the mountains. A grihasta is a householder, is someone who is very much involved in the marketplace and does work, you know, has a business maybe, is a cobbler, is a stonemason, has a wife, and has a child. Let's be very clear, Indian society from its very inception does not privilege one over the other. It in fact sees one as the necessary culmination of the other, and it sees one as the necessary prerequisite of the other. So let me explain what I mean by that. In the law of Manu, an ancient text, one of the founding texts of Hindu society or Indian society, it prescribes what it means. It says that what it means to have a decent human life is to live according to four uh, principal aims and a lot different stage of, stages of your life, each to one of those aims. So let me be clearer. From ages 0 to 21, you were a brahmachari. You were a student. 
So in this phase of your life, your only concern is to learn as much as you could in an ashram setting. So you would study the Vedas, you would study the Upanishads, you would memorize all these texts. You weren't that interested in realizing the meaning of those texts. And I remember as a kid, I would always ask my grandfather, you know, what do these words mean? I've just chanted two hours of this Shiva Purana. Um, what, what's the Tamil mean? What's the Sanskrit mean? And he's like, nah, just, just memorize it. For now, just memorize it. So that's what you would do. You know, you would memorize the Yoga Sutra, Atta Yoga Nushasanam, Yoga Shitta Vritti Nirodaha. But you wouldn't think about what they actually meant. And you would get some kind of moral training at this stage as to what was right and what was wrong, ethically speaking. Um, and you would get physical training. You would learn maybe asana or something that would kind of build your body up. So these are your formative years. They go up to age 21. Then between age 21 to, yes, yeah, so and we're going to talk about the vow of continence in a little bit. From age, uh, and, and yes, and yes, typically up to age 21, you weren't having sex. You know, um, you entered into a marriage after your brahmachari period, and then you became a grihasta or a householder. As a householder, you have new duties. Now you are no longer beholden to your teacher as you were in your brahmacharya years. Now you're beholden to your wife and children. So your duty now is to them. It's to society. Your job is to build your business, to do your work, to be a good father, to be a good husband to be a good wife, to be a good mother. That was your grihasta period. Now, once you have discharged your worldly duties at the age of 55 or 60, when you've passed on the family business to your children, you enter a very interesting phase known as the vanaprastha phase. This is where you start to renounce the world. Notice you renounce the world not right at the outset of your life. You first have to be in the world. You have to experience it. You have to be involved in it. Only then is your renunciation worth anything. You know, and this happens in Amish communities too. Have you heard of a Ramspringa? So Amish communities are typically, you know, very insular societies that live away from society, you know, that at large. They don't like technology. They don't like electricity. They don't like modern medicine. And there they are in their own insular community. Yet, and yet they encourage their young 18 year olds to go to New York City and just, I don't know, visit a strip club or something. Like it's called a rumspringa and it's a year to be in the world so that you can actually decide to leave it. You know, so there's that in Hindu society, the idea that like you only start to renounce at around age 60 after you've handed down your business to your children. I mean, of course, if you think of it societally, if everybody renounced, it'd be very difficult to maintain a society, you know? And so this law of Manu was a prescription for how to organize urban life. You see it in Plato's Republic too, yes? Uh, the idea of like the guardians and the merchants and how to structure a society, what have you. So, okay, you have this idea that while you're 60 something, that's when you and your wife leave your children to the family business. And the two of you go off into the forest and you study scripture together. So at this point, your wife or your husband is your spiritual partner. And together you work out the meaning of all the stuff you learned as a child. I mean, you don't really need to visit a library because it's in your head. You know, you and your wife might sit down and he might say to you, today, let's look at the Yoga Sutra. And you'd be like, okay, which book would you like me to chant? And you would chant and you would figure out what each thing, each thing meant. The idea is that it takes a certain level of maturity to be able to work out the meaning of these texts. 
maturity that you hopefully have acquired by being in the world. Now, the truly interesting part of your life is like age 80 and above. Because remember, you're supposed to live to age 120. It's kind of the prescribed age. And it's not impossible given that, you know, you were waking up way before the sunrise, your circadian rhythms were synced up. There were no blue screens to mess up with your, mess your melatonin up. You lived a very active life. You know, life expectancy was good. And so in your later years, like 80 to 120, you actually split up with your wife and husband. Both of you go separate ways and now you enjoy solitude because it's only in solitude that spiritual rightness can come about. So in this period, maybe you find a guru, a spiritual master and learn under him or her. Uh, Maybe you just find solace by yourself in a Himalayan, Himalayan cave, working it out by yourself. So there is in this period, a kind of culmination of life. You know, you look back on your life and you say, when I was a child, I was interested in karma, pleasure. When I was an adult, I was interested in artha, material accomplishment or wealth. When I was 70 years old, I was interested in religion, dharma. I was interested in spiritual philosophy. But now in the final stages of my life, I'm interested in a new goal, moksha, liberation complete freedom from bondage. The bondage of the senses, the bondage of the, I don't know, say whatever you want to call it, the bondage of karma, samskara, whatever it is, you're interested in realizing the truth of the scriptures. And you can only do that in solitude. Okay, so this is the ideal structure of your life in Indian society, Sursa 4000 BCE, um, after the law of Manu comes out. There is one problem with this though. And the problem is... um, it sometimes takes more than 20 years to understand the meaning of scripture. (laughs) Um, You can't take Rome in a day. Neither can you be enlightened in a day, though I have said that you can in a single breath become enlightened. You know, it's all, all it takes is an insight. But to have that insight requires a great deal of spiritual training. And um, if you waited till the very end of your life to do that training, you might not actually have enough time to do it. You know, so the idea is that there's now a fifth group in society, and we call that group sadhus. They can be very young renunciants. They can be at age 35 renunciants. They can be at age 70 renunciants. But a sadhu is someone who at any period of their life suddenly realizes that they don't want to be in the world anymore, um, perhaps because of a previous life spiritual work. And so they leave, they renounce, and they join a monastery, or they go off by themselves and practice alone. This is very similar in Buddhism and Jainism. They also leave society behind, join a monastery, change their name, all of that. So if you wanted to take up the sannyasin vows, they call it taking up the ochre cloth. You know, you would join this order of monks, actually the world's oldest order of monks, the Shankaracharya order of sannyasins, if you will. Now, you would take a few vows. You, first of all, would enter a 10-year period of study, You were called a brahmachari. Whatever age you were, you were brahmachari for 10 years. You took a vow of celibacy. You know, you took a vow of uh, poverty. These are the two central vows of the sannyasin order. So you don't have sex with anybody, you know, and you don't own anything either, except for your ochre cloth and a few books. And even then you don't really see yourself as owning those things, you know, Um, and you change your name. 
as we mentioned earlier, as common to many spiritual disciplines around the world, you change your name as a symbolic act of severing your ties with the world. You sever your ties with your caste. If you are a kshatriya, you are no longer that. If you are a shudra, you are no longer that. You fall outside the caste system of ancient India. You're an outsider now in the truest sense of the word. Um, it's like the Bob Dylan song. You're invisible now. You have no secrets to conceal. You know, it's like that whole thing. You're like a rolling stone. And so what do you do? Mostly you walk. <laughs> That's the great pastime. Everybody from Gandhi to um, every sannyasin you can think of is like a marathon walker. <laughs> they walk all through the Himalayas. They walk up and down India, um, debating, preaching, singing in some cases. And all the while, they don't have sex, they don't own property. So these are the two central vows of a sannyasin. During this brahmachari period, you learn some technique in order to control lust, in order to see through the illusion of greed, in order to really internalize that the world is illusory. So you take 10 years to learn spiritual philosophy. And then at year 10, you do a special ceremony. Um, for 10 years, by the way, you have a little tuft of hair uh, and that signals you as a brahmachari. It actually gets picked up in Star Wars. You know, the Paduan learners have a little tuft of hair. That comes from this uh, sannyasin ideal of like, you know, learner has it. And, and on the day of your initiation, you cut the hair. It's symbolic of severing your tie to the world. So when you become a Jedi Knight or, you know, um, that's when you cut the hair, so to speak. So now you're bald. You're wandering around in an orange cloth or you're wandering around in a loincloth and your hair is down to your knees. Both are, you know, kind of the typical depictions of sannyasins. So here's what I want to propose to you. For a long time, India has kind of been battling this idea like, oh, our ideals as a nation is renunciation and service. These are our highest ideals. Seeing the illusion of matter is like the revelation par excellence of Indian philosophy. Maya, prakriti, you know, seeing through the illusion of worldly success, that's our revelation par excellence. That's what we teach the world, after all. And then service. So once you've renounced the world, what is there left to do but walk around wordlessly singing, uh, chanting, uh, giving spiritual instruction so other people don't have to suffer, you know? Now, if that's the ideal, then maybe it's not accessible for people who still have worldly ambitions, who still want to grow their business, who still want to participate in the marketplace. And so actually a schism developed in Indian society between sadhus or sannyasins and grihastas or householders. You know, um, a grihasta or householder would perform evening puja, meaning ritual worship at the altar. They would donate to a sadhu. Every time they saw a penniless beggar, they would give them money. They would feed the monks and the monks would go around and beg, but they were separate. You know, and one was seen as a spiritual path and the other was seen as the worldly path. And the worldly people were waiting for another birth to be spiritual. <laughs> and the spiritual people were kind of looking down at the worldly being like, ah, you'll learn to renounce it eventually. And so now this is what the landscape of renunciation looked like up till about the 20th century. And I would even argue the 19th century. In the 19th century, you had great householder sannyasins like 
Sri Ramakrishna Paramahansa, the householder sannyasin par excellence. Although Sri Ramakrishna himself did organize a monastic order and he did swear into the order celibate, poverty-stricken monks, he himself was married. But he was celibate for most of for all of that marriage, actually. He never consummated his marriage sexually. And he was known for worshipping his wife, Sarada Devi, as an incarnation of Kali. So he would literally put his wife on the altar and pray to her. You know, and he saw his wife as divinity. Um, and he was unable to see her in any kind of sexual way. Ananda Maima, another 19th century female uh, mystic, great sage, she was also married, but she never consummated that marriage. In fact, when her husband, who later became her disciple, actually, when her husband looked lustfully at her, she would, uh, you know, he would uh, legendarily have a vision and he would see her body as being worm ridden and decayed, meaning he would see the uh, kind of transiency of flesh, the kind of the abhorrence of lust, of lusting after the, the sack of meat and bones, you know. Say what you will. But um, Ananda Ma, Sri Ramakrishna, Sri Ramakrishna, they were all married householders. Uh, even Nisargadatta Maharaj, another 19th century sage. So you have this now a new brand of sage who were both householders yet able to maintain an inward renunciation. And by the way, this idea you get in the Bhagavad Gita. You know, you get in the ancient scriptures that it's not about external, outward shows of renunciation. It's more about an inward turning away from those things that you no longer see value in. It doesn't mean that you stop participating in those things. It just means that you stop participating in them, expecting to get something out of them. It just means that you stop doing it selfishly for your own ends. So these monks, like Lahiri Mahashaya, uh, Sri Ramakrishna, um, Ananda Maima, showed in their lives um, what at the core of Indian philosophy we've been trying to say, which is it's all about an inner renunciation. So if you see in the Bhagavad Gita, it says, Krishna says, uh, I love those who are homeless, who takes the whole world for his home, his or her home. Um, and all that stuff. So you get all this kind of language of renunciation. But how to renunciate is actually an inner process. And you see this in Jesus as well. So when in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, he whosoever looks upon a woman with lust has already committed adultery. Jesus is saying it's more about the inner purity than it is about an outer action. So let your focus be on inward renunciation as opposed to outward shows of renunciation. Because after all, say you take the orange cloth, say you make a show of leaving the world behind. According to Sri Krishna in the, Bhag uh, in the Bhagavata Purana and in the Bhagavad Gita, the world will follow you to your Himalayan cave. You know, you can leave the world, but you can't take the world out of you since the world was never out there to begin with, it was always in here. The world was not the world, it was your attachment to things. And just by running away from those things, it doesn't address that you're still attached to them. So it's possible to be so attached to something that you express your attachment as aversion. You know, you're so obsessed with the body that now you're uh, hell bent on negating the body. And that was kind of the Buddha's problem with a lot of the mystics of his era. 
You know, he said, look, in the name of spirituality, in the name of renouncing the world, you are punishing your body, you are punishing your mind. Is that not a kind of attachment to the body and the mind? You said glorifying the body and the mind is a problem, but now you've demonized it. In both cases, it dominates your thoughts, you know? Um, so the Buddha, when he proposes the middle way, is much like Ramakrishna and Ananda Mahima reconciling the Grihasta and Sanyasin schism. So in closing, let me say this. When we hear that story about Jesus talking about inward chastity, when we hear the story in Paramahansa Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi uh, about the Ahimsa incident, you know, I, I described it some time ago, but a disciple is sitting with Sri Yukteswar when a mosquito lands on his hand. You know, India, lots of mosquitoes. So he wants to smack the mosquito, but then he pauses and he says, no, 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 Ahimsa. Ahimsa, of course, means nonviolence. He goes, Ahimsa, Ahimsa, nonviolence. I won't smack the mosquito. And the guru looks at him and says, why didn't you finish the job? And the student, Agath, says, but Guru, Maharaji, I can't. It's Ahimsa, you know, compassion for all living things, nonviolence. I couldn't kill the mosquito. And the Guru says, look, you already struck the death blow with your mind. You might as well carry it out with your hand because that's where the harm is done. It's in the intention, not in the actual action. Because after all, we Indian philosophers are notorious for rejecting the existence of the world. I mean, Krishna's opening line to Arjuna on the battlefield is, uh, one of his opening lines is, he who thinks that he is slain and he who thinks that he is the slayer are both ignorant of the truth, O Arjuna. You know, Krishna is saying nobody dies, nobody kills. This is all an illusion. It's a, it's a seemingness. What you consider to be death, the wise consider to be simply a change of clothes. And you know, you and I, we've talked together a lot about reincarnation and karma and what happens after death. So you can see some of the spiritual philosophical infrastructure behind this claim. And given this claim, you know now that in the core of renunciation, it's not about outward action. It's about an inward renunciation. So how to do it? how to do it. So we'll close with this final thing. Why you want to do it is hopefully to all of you, I mean, those of you who are here in this discussion are kind of seasoned Vedantins, seasoned philosophers. So you know all about the trap of the world, the Buddha's um, articulation of suffering. You've heard me articulate it so many times to you that at this point, it's probably nauseating. You know, if I were to say, Dukkam, dukkam, sarvam, dukkam at you one more time. You're probably going to flip your computer, come to my house and kick my ass. If I tell you about the first chakra orientation towards security grubbing, the transiency of second chakra desire for pleasure, the transiency of third chakra desire for power, you're going to be like, Nish, this is old news. We, we've, we've been here a lot. We know about suffering. So why you would want to renounce the world, I leave that to you. You know that the world has a tendency of trapping you in patterns, patterns that you know aren't serving you. And yet, for whatever reason, there's some compulsion in you to continue perpetuating those patterns. So the renunciation here is to radically sever your link to those patterns. And here's how you do it. There are a few ways. <laughs> the first one um, is to take some vows. 
So this is kind of the orthodox way. Buddhists love it. And the original Raja yogis loved it. So in Patanjala Yoga Shastra, or the Patanjali Yoga Sutra, which by the way, was kind of composed around the time the Buddha was teaching. So Patanjali, the great sage and the originator of yoga philosophy, um, or at least the central proponent of yoga philosophy was probably a contemporary of the Buddha. So in this period, around the year 530 BCE, we liked vows. You know, we were very kind of dramatic. We were like, I'm going to take five vows and I'm never going to break them. And the five vows were ahimsa, nonviolence. I vow to in word, deed, or thought, never to harm another living being. Radical, in word, deed, or thought. So if you so much as think a condescending thought, as cuss someone when they cut you out off in traffic, you're violating ahimsa. That was your first vow, your central vow. The second vow you would take was uh, satya. You vow to tell the truth all the time. When Jesus says, I am the way, the life, and the truth, he's not saying, I know the truth. He's saying, I am the truth. And that means he's living the truth. Similarly, the vow of satya means you see the illusory nature of the world. You know, you see the world to be not what it is as it appears to you. And so you try to maintain truth because you realize the world is perpetuated by illusion. So you try your best to abstain from illusion. You notice how often you discount the truth to aggrandize the self. You know, there's boasting. There is manipulating others, you know. Um, that's why we take a vow of truth-telling. Then you take the vow, ashteya, non-stealing. You try your best not to steal other people's possessions because that only reinforces this idea of incompleteness, which you know isn't true to your real being. Then, of course, there's this vow, brahmacharya, which Ryan was asking about earlier, the vow of continence or celibacy, which you know is a uh, whole discussion in of itself, and we will do it next week. So we'll talk all about sexual desire, continency, and celibacy next week. For now, we'll just gloss over it. It's the whole thing. It's a can of worms, and we'll get into it. The fifth one is aparigraha, which means non-dependence on others or non-grasping. So don't take gifts from other people. Don't accept donations, because that will make you indebted to them, and that might affect the way you live your life. So these are the five vows that a yogi took. So that's one way to renounce the world, take vows. But of course, we know that now that's not really um, very accessible to us. We're just going to be, you know, taking vows to break them. Because <laughs> it's kind of hard to demand these things of yourself when so much of your conditioning has trained you to do the opposite. So another way to renounce is to, rather than reject the world, allow the world to fall away from you. And you do that through intensive, consistent, daily practice of asana, pranayama, and meditation. You start with asana. You purify the physical vessel. That allows you to work with your subtle energy or your prana a little more intimately. When you start to practice with your prana, which is a lot more than breathing exercises, you know, when you're able to start moving energy around the body, when you master the five values or the five winds, then you can start to deepen your meditation. And when you meditate, what ends up happening is you come into contact with fullness of being. So psychological wellness is a byproduct of meditation. A lot of people pursue it as an end. 
You know, in yoga, it's a means to an end, but let's not ignore that it happens. And when psychological wellness happens, you're less likely to lie, steal, you know, you're less likely to chase tail all day because you no longer need to get laid to feel like um, validated. You know, there's a kind of inner uh, self-sufficiency that develops when you mature in your spiritual practice. So this is a second way to renounce the world. Um, that's by intensifying your spiritual practice so much so that the desires you had fall away from you all on their own. You know, I have to give you an example here. Um, and it, it's, it's a funny example, but say you uh, are into ecstasy and Molly, and at the same time, you're also into cocaine. The interesting thing is you can't do them both at the same time. So if you're on Molly and you take cocaine, it will ruin your uh, trip. Like you won't be on Molly anymore. It will sober you up. It'll cut through the Molly. So say you like cocaine. And if you're on Molly, you know that cocaine will cut your trip. So you no longer desire it. The desire for cocaine falls away from you when you're on Molly. You know? So the idea here is that when you encounter a bliss that is categorically different and higher than lower forms of pleasure, you start to see those forms of pleasure as contradictory and kind of a buzzkill for the, the bliss that you have now. So when you start to meditate, you have this like high on life feeling, sorry to be like a dare commercial right now, but you get this like high on life uh, kind of feeling. And you know that every time you get drunk or you get high, it dulls that feeling. You know, every time you eat a chocolate cake where it used to like delight your senses before, now it's just too much. You know, it's just too much uh, of an assault on the sensory organs. Now you prefer the nectar of water, the fragrance of flowers, you know. And so that's another way that um, these desires fall away from you. You find different senses of fulfillment. Now, the third way I'm going to offer to you is this is somewhat more tantric or... Um, maybe more surreptitious, but this method is to, re to really internalize that there is nothing an external thing can do for you that you cannot do for yourself on your own. So whatever a drug can do for you, that state of consciousness, you can access naturally. So whatever a chocolate cake can do for you or becoming a Pulitzer Prize winner can do for you, or enjoying a meaningful romantic relationship can do for you, all of those things you can give to yourself. And the idea here is that you don't actually desire things. You desire the flavor of consciousness that you think those things will bring you. So it's not the thing that you want. It's the way you're going to feel when you get it that you want. If you internalize this, you realize that what you're hankering after is not external things. It's internal states. And so this changes your directionality in life. No longer are you seeking to change the outside world in order to create an inner state. You instead take a more direct approach. You start to work with inner states um, to cultivate a state that is more desirable to you. So say you want to feel love, like romantic love, you might engage in bhakti yoga. You might buy yourself a harmonium and chant Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. And that will over time create an effulgent feeling of love. You'll weep, you'll cry, and you will have all on your own the state that you desired without needing to go out into the world to get it. 
You know, say you desire energy and vitality before you used to get coffee and energy drinks, etc. Now you learn some asana and some pranayama and you feel vitality and you know how to turn it on. So if anything, the practice of asana and pranayama and hatha yoga gives you a kind of psychic control. It gives you the ability to turn on and off at will certain chemical reactions in the body. I mean, this is not so far-fetched, right? You can, within a short period of time, learn to slow your heartbeat. Breath is an autonomic process for most people, meaning breathing is something that most people do unconsciously. Yet you, in your first yoga class, learn to make conscious the unconscious. So in your very first yoga class, you learned how to bring the breath into your control. It's not so far-fetched to think that in a year of practicing this, you'll be able to slow and maybe even stop your heartbeat at will. You'll be able to change your body temperature at will so you won't feel cold and need a sweater. You won't feel hot and need to go out and buy a lemonade, ice-cold lemonade. It's not so far-fetched to think that you can manipulate your serotonin, dopamine, and melatonin in order to produce any sort of state that you want. You know, so given the right stimulation, you can produce in yourself some of the most rarefied states of pleasure. Okay, this is a dangerous approach because it can create still an attachment to pleasure, but at least it redirects where you look for it, you know? <laughs> so now, the, now to close, I'm sorry, I'm 10 minutes over, but to close, I'll give you one last way, the fourth way, the final way of renunciation. And I'm going to borrow a very beautiful phrase from Shunryu Suzuki. And he said, renunciation is not giving things up. Renunciation is merely the acceptance that all things go away on their own. I really like that depiction of um, renunciation. Because it's a kind of mental attitude or an emotional attitude that resonates with that early Upanishadic claim that the world is illusory. It resonates with the Buddha and his claim that the world is transient and impermanent. And it phrases it in a way that allows you to immediately practice it. And the practice here is a deep acceptance of the change that inevitably happens moment to moment. So you get a promotion at work and money comes in. You're happy about that, but you also accept that next month you might not make as much or you might get demoted or you might lose your job because the economy changed. It's a pandemic. You know, you might find a beautiful partner and share a deeply rich and rewarding romantic relationship, but you also accept that in the worst case, um, they might die or leave you. In the best case, um, they might stick around, but no longer fulfill you in the way they're fulfilling you today. That relationship might change. You know, so that acceptance, that simple, I allow for this change to happen, might be the deepest form of renunciation. And Shunryu Suzuki is a Zen Buddhist, and Zen Buddhists are famed for their kind of non doing. You know, so thus far in today's lecture, in about an hour and 10 minutes, I've kind of meandered around this topic of renunciation, you know, and I've kind of packaged it as this thing that you do. You turn away from worldliness, 
you renounce by taking vows, by stimulating your hormonal and nervous system in a certain way, something you do. But in this phrase, renunciation is not giving things up. It's simply accepting that things go away on their own. I'm suggesting instead of doing a kind of watching, a kind of sakchi meditation, a witness meditation, where renunciation is nothing more than an acceptance of the transiency of the world. You know, so that's, I think, where we will close today. Um, renunciation is not giving things up. It's merely accepting that they come and they go. All right. Um, let's maybe close with the final OM together, if you'd like. And in this OM, I will chant the Gayatri Mantra, which is, you know, a cleansing mantra. It's a mantra that kind of displaces energy that no longer serves you and in its place imbibes energy that is of a higher, more sattvic quality. I'll chant the Gayatri Mantra three times. You're welcome to join me after the Om if you know the mantra. It's one of the oldest Vedic mantras and chant it along with me. Or you're welcome to just sit in meditation and receive the vibration of the mantra. It will work in both cases. But while the mantra is going, I invite you to consider one thing in your life right now, just one thing that you feel like a pattern or a tendency that you feel is no longer serving you, uh, a behavior that you feel no longer has a place in your newfound spiritual life. And bring that to mind. And in this three chants of the Gayatri Mantra, allow it to just release, let it go, knowing that it only stays in you insofar as you cling to it. Yes, shall we do that? Okay. So coming into your seat, we'll chant Om and then the three Gayatri Mantras. Oh.